0: Welcome back to the 100th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including one of the oldest continuous running stores in New York City thinks it may not last through these liberal policies, a talk about how the Trump era needs to end within the GOP, and we're going to discuss the boycott of Bud Light and how it may not actually have the effect that conservatives want. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So what is one brand that you could never boycott? No matter how terrible their practice is, no matter how unethical, you just couldn't live without it. And, you know, if you want to tell me why, and not just the brand, I'd love to know. Throw it down in the comments section. I love reading through and seeing what you guys have to say. All right, let's jump to our first article. This one comes from Fox News. NYC store that survived the Great Depression fears it won't last much longer under liberal policies. So we, of course, know know, New York City, very liberal city, lots of high tax rates. And then over the last few years, we've seen a lot of policies that are meant to aid the populations that are a little bit disenfranchised. So, you know, we had a little bit of a stagnant New York there for a little bit. But people said it's going to rebound. People are going to come back to the city and then there was the crime wave. We saw lots of different reports coming out of New York about people being pushed in front of subway trains, women being assaulted while they were running. And then the sentiment was, again, well, well, it will pass. Erica Adams will get it under control, and New York will be back to the way it was. And this story runs directly against that narrative. So let's set the stage and give you a little bit of background about this company. Quote, Eric Frankel, fourth-generation owner of Frankel's in Brooklyn, aired out his frustrations Wednesday with high taxes and policies burdening the small business operating since the 1980s. Oh, excuse me, the 1890s. Quote, I feel like city Democrats are working against us, and the fact that they're funding Amazon warehouses in Red Hook and in Sunset Park, it shows you that they don't really care for small businesses Frankel told Fox and Friends First. Quote, they love using all these talking points. They say we're the heart and soul, but I say I feel more like an appendix, end quote. So you actually saw from some of the more progressive candidates a few years ago, like AOC, you remember there was a whole tiff about her keeping Amazon out from building their headquarters or building new warehouses inside New York so you did see this movement from some of the politicians to say, no, okay, we need to make sure that the small businesses are not disenfranchised, we need to make sure that there's not more high-paying jobs from these giant mega corporations because they're just going to suck the wealth out of New York City, they're just going to have people commute in from outside the city, rather than have someone who lives in one of the local apartments. But while this was happening, you of course saw really high tax rates, and the raising of the minimum wage. So it was kind of a half-hearted effort on the part of the Democrats trying to protect these small businesses. And that's what Frankel is highlighting here, that these policies, though, you know, some of them have been beneficial, the other ones, such as high tax rates and increasing minimum wage, all these sort of things have continued to go forward. We haven't had a real labor reform in New York for a while now. And then you add on top the crime that's happening inside the city, the possibility that your store can get broken into. You may have to hire security. You may have to buy a new security system for when you're not there. All of these things are not conductive to a strong, thriving small business market. And when you have a store like this that's been open since 1890, and it's been run by four different generations of American entrepreneurs, it really speaks to how much they don't care. New York doesn't care about their legacy, but they also just don't care about the small businesses. Or, like Frankel says, they pay lip service to it, but that doesn't mean that they're actually walking. They're just talking. They're just doing a little chit-chat. They're not actually walking the walk. All right, so let's jump into a little bit more of a history of the store. Quote, we survived gangs, riots, armed robberies, pollution from the BQE, recessions, the Great Depression. Who would have thought property taxes and bureaucrats would be our greatest threat, he tweeted. According to a report from WalletHub, New York has the highest overall tax burden in the country at 12.47%. So just take that in, 12.47%. So 12.5%. So let's break it down a little bit. Quote, the property tax burden is 43 The income tax burden is 4.7, and sales and excise tax burden is 3.39. Quote, the property taxes are too high. We're competing with Amazon. We're competing with companies that don't have to charge sales tax, and it's just too much. Frankel shared, quote, they charge us based on assessed value, he continued. So they're assuming that we're generating $350,000 in rent, but we're 100% a hundred percent owner occupied i work downstairs i live upstairs and it's really a depressed area there's no way that we could rent it out for that much money and in order to retail it to really work you have to own your property end quote so basically what's going on here is they're over evaluating him they're saying that he's worth more than he's actually worth and also, he's feeling the pressure from these big companies that are coming in, and they have a lot of, maybe not necessarily liquid assets, but they have a lot of backing, they can get well-financed mortgages and loans, and they can buy up property in these cities no problem. Now, are they going to pay the highest price for those buildings? No, of course they're going to negotiate, but they have the assets to do so. And then they push up housing costs costs for everybody else around them, and then I'm not saying they're doing this yet, but I wouldn't be surprised in the future if you have New York senators saying, oh, well, now we have Amazon in part of our tax base in New York City. We know they got a little bit of extra cash in the back. We can change some of these regulations, some of this taxing regulations, and we can say, you know what? We can actually charge this one particular area a little bit more. You know, we changed the zoning. This is a business area. We can actually charge them a little bit more. And then the other small businesses, maybe in Brooklyn, I don't know my sex of New York that well, maybe Manhattan, the Bronx, and all these different areas, they may actually have to pay higher taxes because there are larger corporations moving in who actually are able to afford those kind of expenses. Whereas you have the Frankel business that just can't. And when their property is being assessed at uh, $350,000 in rent, but it's not actually worth that, and they don't bring in enough value from their retail sales, yeah, at the end of the day, it feels like they're jipping them. It feels like New York saying, oh, yeah, 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 you're definitely worth that much. If you were to sell that property, that is definitely how much you would be able to get. In, or if you were to lease it out, that's definitely how much you could get in a year. It feels like they're artificially inflating the value of his property so they can suck a little bit more property tax out of him. I'm not saying that's criminal. It's just unethical. It's a little bit slimy, if you ask me. It sounds like bureaucrats trying to get a little bit of extra money while they can. But there is one other component that I have mentioned, of course, and this is the crime surge. And it it had a little bit of an effect. Actually, I'll just let Frankel talk about it a little bit more. Quote, the small business owner added that crime in the city has made it increasingly hard to find staff while its customer base is also fleeing the state's liberal policies. Quote, we have a lot of people now. They don't want to raise their kids in this environment, Frankel said. Our schools are failing. The quality of life is tough. And let's just pause there. That, that is the trifecta. Quality of life is going down. Crime is going up and the schools are bad. That is, that is the trifecta of things that will not bring people to your states. It will not increase your tax base. It will not bring families who want to raise their kids in this area, and maybe their kids will stay around and create new businesses or feed into the old ones. So you can see why this is a huge problem. And when they're directly fleeing the city, guess what? Tax base is a little bit smaller. So New York has to find a more creative way to tax the residents that are still there. And that's why you may see a few of these policies that's affecting Frankel that, you know, they seem a little bit slimy because they're trying to get that extra little juice out of the people that are still there and either can't afford to leave or they have a small business that's been operating for four generations that they don't want to just leave behind because that's a deep heritage If I had a family-owned company that my great-great-grandfather founded and we had survived through all the hardships that Mr. Frankel and his family has survived, you don't want to leave that behind. It has such an emotional resonance. Resonance. You feel connected to it. If anything, the building, the customers that you've had over the years, all those connections, that's just something you can't just pick up and leave. So... Frankel is bearing the burden of the rest of people leaving New York. And that's just not fair to him. But let's get back to his quote here. Quote, it's hard to keep a business open these days. I know so many small business owners who are now driving for Uber, he said. We supplement our income selling online. I would say friends don't let friends sell shoes online. And there are too many returns, Frankel added. Quote, but the city doesn't buy from us. I really feel like they're working against us, end quote. And, you know, at least he is modernizing. He's selling some of his products outside the state. Maybe if he's selling to other states, he could set up a corporation or a arm of the business in Delaware so he doesn't have to necessarily deal with sales tax or something of that nature. But goodness gracious, I really empathize with Mr. Frankel here. I understand how he must feel when he looks at his shop And he thinks of all the time he spent there with his grandfather, his father, them teaching him the trade, him interacting with the community, and then seeing it all fall apart around him. So it's just sad. And when I talk about there being crime surges, when I talk about the city's dying, this is exactly what I'm talking about. But that's a little bit too depressing. So let's move on to something that is a little bit mm, fun to hypothesize about. Let's put it that way. This one comes from The Daily Beast. The GOP can save itself if Trump runs, then loses the election. So can can you tell where this is going? Can you tell the author's bias? Well, if you can't, they are a never-Trumper. And they quite literally say so within the first three lines. Quote, as a never-Trump conservative, and let's just pause here. Don't we just love that label? Not no-Trump, not anti-Trump never Trump. It is a very declarative statement. This man should never, ever be the president. I feel like these people have a little bit of extra vitriol when they look at him and they see how he handles politics and how they, you know, he's kind of destroyed the norms. So that's why we get such a strong, assertive, never Trump kind of statement. All right, quote, I never wanted to have to come to grips with this scenario. I would love for someone to wrest control of the GOP from Trump but it is looking increasingly likely that Republicans are, capable, are incapable of stopping Trump from once again winning their presidential nomination. Observers such as liberal Washington Monthly columnist Bill Secker are starting to say DeSantis won't even run. While I'm not saying we're there yet, the argument for DeSantis sitting this one out is increasingly persuasive. Opposing Trump was always a gamble mainly because the Ricky-Bobby rule, if you ain't first, you last, rather than winning a blue ribbon or becoming the next in line, finishing second to Trump simply means that you have to endure more brutal humiliation than anyone else. End quote. And I think there is a little bit of something... Here. This may be a reason that we saw DeSantis, or we've seen DeSantis sit out for so long. He wants to see how the field develops. He wants to see how popular Trump actually is. So he, obviously the gears are turning. It seems that he is putting something together. He's been traveling around the country. He's been doing lots of press releases. He's obviously put out a book. So we've seen the gears turning. We've seen the machines start. But also I think the reason he hesitated so long... Is because he's trying to gauge where everybody's at. Because if you run for president, and let's be clear, he couldn't be governor of Florida again. But obviously, after he's governor of Florida, he's going to want to either go back into the Senate, he may want to go to the House, he may run for some other position somewhere. He is obviously a lawyer, so he could become a practicing law clerk again. Maybe he becomes a law base. I don't know. There are lots of options. But if you funnel yourself... And you go for the nomination. You don't get it. It's not even like you ran in the primaries, got nominated by the party, and then lost in the general. No, if you don't even make it to the general, that is humiliating. So maybe he's thinking, I need to keep a little bit of my prestige. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do in Florida. I'm going to keep my record nice and shiny. I'm going to appeal to all the Floridians. I'm going to make sure that America keeps my name in mind. And then he'll run in 2026 or sorry 2028 because at that point if Trump wins Trump's out because he can't have a third term and if Biden wins he's out because he can't have a third term so he kind of has a fresh slate he'll be going up against a fresh democrat either way and he won't have to deal with Trump in the primary process so i could see that being a important strategy and we've seen him kind of flip-flop on supporting Trump in certain situations And, of course, he's gotten lots of criticism for this, but I really think he's just trying to save his own butt. He realized when he went after Trump, a lot of the supporters were not okay with it. He was testing the waters. He put his toe in. He said, oh, dang, that is scorching hot. I'm not going to do that again. And he went too far to the other side and went to a cold plunge and then tried to outright defend Trump and say that we're not going to extradite him. And then he said, dang, that's a little bit too cold. So he's, he's figuring it out right now. And maybe that's him just like I said, testing the waters, seeing whether he should get in, or testing the waters to see how he's going to approach this primary process. I don't think that, like this author, I don't think he's out of the running yet. I think that he has his eye on the presidency, he has primed himself, he has made a huge gain in Florida, and he should really, in his mind, he probably thinks he should really capitalize on it. He just had a huge reelection. he's only had about a year in office, He'll have about two by the time the primaries and then the general comes around. So then that's a lot of time to capitalize on the Florida movement without having two years extra to mess something up and lose the heart of the people there. So I think moving forward, DeSantis is an option. And the author, you know, they actually speak a lot about DeSantis. They really like DeSantis. And I think that's because as a never-Trumper, they want someone competent who's conservative, They also want someone who's kind of a part of the establishment. And DeSantis checks off all of those boxes. Quote, I'm sure some readers see my preferences for DeSantis over Trump as a distinction without a difference. Some people even believe that nominating DeSantis would be more dangerous than Trump, in as much as he is more of a competent authoritarian. End quote. Or We're going to pause there. I love how this author is obviously, oh, no, 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 I'm just a never-Trumper, I'm still a conservative, but then using the criticisms that the liberal media hurls at DeSantis and giving them some validity, even though they do break it down here in the next line, I just always think it's interesting when you look at the never-Trump or the conservatives that these definitely liberal, I would say Daily Beast is a pretty liberal organization, decide to trot out in order to make their point and make it seem like they're less biased than they actually are but let's get back to the quote here i have never accepted that argument in my lifetime only one man has sought to prevent the peaceful transfer of power the man is donald trump moving on from him should be an obvious and it should be vital we learned in 2016 once you are a major party nominee it becomes a binary choice where anything can happen this is to say that Trump could be president again, and this time, his potential to cause serious damage would be even greater. As David Froome told me back in 2021, I'm really worried about the return of Donald Trump this time, because this time, the velociraptors have figured out how to work the doorknobs. End quote. And that you know that is a really <laughs> a good quote from Mr. Froome here, and I, I definitely think there's validity to that, in that... Last time Trump went in, or at least it appeared that he wanted to kick everybody out. That's what he said he wanted to do. But then he got in, he started to get involved in the systems, the bureaucracies that are already at play. Now he knows how it works. Now when he says he's going to drain the swamp, he doesn't mean, oh, I'm going to get in and get rid of a few people here or there. He's going to try to decimate anybody that is not on his side. Even if they may serve him, politically, even if they're good at their job and they just may be a different leaning than him or they don't fully endorse him, that's the dangerous part, in my opinion. I do agree some of the bureaucracies need to be stripped, 100%. We need to get a lot of this inefficiency out of the government. One, to get spending brought down just just a little bit in some areas. I mean, just maybe a little bit. It's not like we have the highest inflation of our entire life or anything. But also to get rid of the entrenched thinking But if that comes at the cost of getting rid of people who are really good at their job and are genuinely trying to serve the country rather than just one party, that's where I would have an issue. And I feel like Trump may come in with a, nope, all of you gone. Not even the competent ones, not even the ones who will put forth good policy, even if I don't agree with them. No, everyone that does not agree with me, get out. And I feel like that could be a little bit dangerous. But at the end of the day, I do think... That that's needed a little bit. I think that we need to get rid of the people who are intentionally slowing down the president, who are intentionally getting in the way of the elected officials from enacting their jobs. And at the end of the day, and I know I say at the end of the day a lot, but at the end of the day, they don't serve the American people as best they could. They are not elected by the American people either, which I think is a huge point. They're appointed, and half the time they stay there until they're either fired or for the rest of their lives. And that doesn't necessarily feel like a good way to go about it. That's an indefinite job security, unless they are fired. Most of these bureaucrats have indefinite job security, so they don't feel heavily motivated to innovate their processes make sure that we're making the government a little bit slimmer, cutting down on excessive spending or the extremely long and arduous regulation and rules processes we see at some of these three-letter agencies like the EPA or even at some of the other ones that we talk about like the FDA. A lot of these organizations take a long time to get things done. And sometimes it's worth it. Sometimes these rules and regulations need to be very well thought out. But very often, it's not just because they're putting a lot of thought into it, it's because it's passing through 10 different people in the bureaucratic chain. And that's a lot of inefficiency that's not necessarily needed. So, I think there are benefits to the bull coming in and breaking all the china in the china shop, but also we may lose a few pieces of really valuable china in the process. So, it's something we need to keep in mind. But I've ranted about this one enough. You can tell where the author comes from, you can tell where I agree and where I disagree, Let's jump to our last article that comes from the Wall Street Journal. Bud Light faces boycott calls, but punishing brands is harder than it looks. So, of course, if you have been living in a hole, there was a promotion deal with Bud Light and the TikTok, I would say, influencer, Dylan Mulvaney where they put Dylan on a can. And conservatives got absolutely outraged by this. How dare you betray our values? How dare you put a person that is trans on the front of a can? How dare you endorse this? And conservatives, of course, have been very outraged. They've been calling for boycotts. And I'll I'll Go to the article here with a quote because they can highlight it very quickly and a little bit more concisely than I could. "Quote: Bud Light's partnership with the transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney has led some conservative critics to call for a boycott, generating headlines and social media posts, including a video of musician Kid Rock shooting a rifle at cases of the beer. But such campaigns often have failed to deliver a meaningful blow. Many social media-fueled boycotts' efforts do not do material damage to the businesses in question. Studies suggest that it may even have the opposite effect by increasing awareness or br- briefly boosting sales, end quote. So everybody knows about the Streisand effect. At the end of the day, if you call something out, even if it's for the right reasons, even if it you feel that it's necessary to do so. It can have the opposite effect. Obviously, the Streisand effect's a little bit different. It's calling attention to something that, or demeaning somebody and saying, hey, no, don't call attention to this. You're doing the wrong thing. And then it gets more attention by trying to hide things. But it's along the similar lines here. It's that they're calling them out. They're saying that this is outrageous. It can't can't be allowed. And now that it's become national news and outlets like this, the Wall Street Journal... Mind you, the Wall Street Journal, one of the foremost publications in the entire nation, is now reporting on it. So people that aren't on social media, that aren't as involved, they're going to see it now. Some are, may be outraged by the fact that this company that they love, that they love to drink, is doing this. But there are others who might not have seen it who are going to be like, oh, good for good for Anheuser-Busch. Good for them. You know what? I like that. I'm going to go buy some Bud Light. So it may have the opposite effect. And we'll see. Just think about it this way. Remember when President Trump was getting all the negative attention? Well, at the time, it was the GOP candidate. Trump was getting all the negative attention from the press. And everybody said, oh, no, it's it's not going to help him out. You know, He's getting all this negative coverage. People are not going to like him. He's not going to win. And then he did end up winning. He took the approach that news is news. News and content about you, whether good or bad, is still attention that you are getting at the end of the day. So if these conservatives are calling for a protest, great. Do what you want to do. If you want to protest, if you want to create a movement around it, I don't have a problem with that. But just be aware that at the end of the day, more people are going to have eyes on this issue, and some of those people that are just learning about it, may not agree with you. You may be drawing more attention to the brand and what they're doing here, and it may entice some people. I mean, this was a move on their part, on Bud Light's part, to appeal to Generation Z. And I had spoken with a friend of mine the other day, actually talking about the issue and how somebody I was watching discussed the fact that, oh, the Bud Light salesperson, the senior rep said, Well, Bud Light is a dying brand, and we're trying to revitalize it. And then these commentators said, that's not true. It's the number one selling brand in America. Well, what I said to my friend was that what this commentator forgot to think about, or maybe just ignored or didn't, you know, maybe because I'm a business person, I have a different perspective, but these beer companies... They're losing a lot of sales to craft beers. I actually did a case study about this in my economics classes, which is why I knew about this. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been front of mind. But they're losing a lot of market share to craft beers, new spirits, and hard seltzers. And hard seltzers are really popular among Gen Z. As a person who is in Gen Z, I can tell you now, a lot of this generation... They love their hard seltzer. They love their white claws. So Bud Light is most definitely losing market share. And that's why this executive is probably saying that they are a dying brand. And this is how they feel that they can reach out to those Gen Z consumers. Because it appears with TikTok, you see a lot of these trendy influencers who are transgender, non-binary, and all these different classifications. And they seem to be really popular On the platform what makes up most of the platform millennials and gen z so their logical conclusion is well if we want to appeal to gen z then we're going to talk to influencers who have a large base of followers in that generation and whether or not it's a smart move whether or not they're actually offending their larger market share because I highly doubt a lot of Gen Zers are drinking Bud Light. If anything, a lot of Gen Zers right now are drinking Bush, at least in my area, because it's a really, really cheap beer. But what I'm trying to get at is they're trying to broaden their horizons, and we'll see if it ended up nipping them in the butt. So I'll read one last quote here, and it's talking about how this is having a little bit of inverse effect, how the traffic around Bud Light whether it be Google searches or on different social media apps, is actually going up a little bit and how they may benefit from this extra traffic. Quote, Bud Light has been mentioned 1.08 million times on social media in the 11 days following Miss Mulvaney's video, up from 20,400 mentions in the 11 days prior. So let's take a step back. That is what? 20,000 goes into 100,000 five times. Multiply that by 10. That's 50x. That's 50x mentions on social media within 11 days. You can see how much extra marketing stir-up Bud Light is getting. Even if it's negative, they're getting mentioned. It's going to be in the front of people's minds, basically. Quote, This activity occurring on Reddit... Twitter, and community forums, said Amy Gilbert, vice president of social innovation at the marketing firm Social Element. The most commonly shared sentiments include disgust, anger, and joy, according to the firm's research. Misinformation circulated. The Associated Press published fact checks to debunk claims that AB InBev, which is the parent company, had fired their entire marketing department and that its chief executive had stepped down as a result of the partnership with Miss Mulvaney. Both of these corrected claims were based on satirical articles that many social media users appeared to believe were legitimate, according to the Associated Press. End quote. So, like I was talking about, they are getting lots of extra traffic, lots of extra mentions. And obviously, some satire websites are like, hey, we can make a little bit of money off this. This is obviously outrageous to some people. So let's make a few articles, try to get a few clicks, maybe heat up some people and get a little bit extra ad revenue out of it. So it's a hot topic. We'll see if the conservatives who want to boycott it, one, stick with it because they may just like their Bud Light too much. But two, if they do do a boycott, if it has any real effect. And a lot of the commentators who are on the right, or even some of the middle, the road ones, who don't like the woke direction a lot of companies are taking, say, hey, this is the one we're going to stick up on, and if we can get Budweiser or AB InBev, the parent company, to apologize for what they did, this is a huge cultural win. We'll see if that's the case. I honestly don't think this will last more than an extra week. And I grabbed this article, I believe, on Friday, and it's Sunday now, and you've seen a few comments here there, but it is dying down. It's getting out of the news cycle. So we'll see if anything comes of it. Just keep your ears to the ground. And, you know, if you love it, if you love what they did, go buy a Bud Light. If you didn't like what they did, boycott Bud Light, take a submachine gun and t- take a video and post it like Kid Rock did. I don't know. You do whatever you want. It's America. That's the beautiful thing. You can choose to either buy or not buy whatever products you want. All right. Let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from laughing squid. Rescued parrot adopts trio of abandoned kittens. So, you know, some animals just have a deep-rooted motherly instinct even with dealing even when dealing with other species of animals. Quote, Millie's curiosity was piqued after Luro, which is a parrot that they adopted started spending time away at a hollow fence post on the edge of their property. Millie looked inside the post and found three tiny kittens at Luro, that Luro had adopted as her own, end quote. But the thing is, Luro, you know, she needed a little bit of assistance with these little ones. Quote, Millie took the kittens inside his house and the family took over where Luro kept constant watch over her new babies, end quote. And, of course, if you want to see any of the cute photos of the little kittens in Laura or you want to read any of today's articles, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip, where I post the link directly to the videos on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.